Welcome to Purpose 360. I'm Carol Cohn. And I'm Chris Noble. And we're on a journey to explore the brightest and most innovative minds and initiatives in social purpose. Today, companies and brands must stand for something meaningful. They have to have a social purpose and bring that purpose forward to their employees, their customers, and their community. Each episode, we're talking to leaders at Fortune 100 companies, global brands, social enterprise startups, NGOs, and everything in between. We'll be taking a deep dive to learn how they are integrating purpose into their organizations. To benefit both business and society for enduring impact. Join us. Welcome to Purpose 360. I'm Carol Cohn. And I'm Chris Noble. And we are thrilled today to have Tony Cervone, who is the SVP Global Communications from General Motors with us. So welcome, Tony. Thank you. Hi, Carol. Hi, Chris. It's, it's great to have you here because um, Tony and I are colleagues um, from the communications world. And I recently heard him talk about GM's um, going forward vision and strategy um, for the next hundred years. And Tony, I asked him if he would he would be in the show, and he said absolutely. So we're we're thrilled to have him here because this is the first show we've done about how a company takes purpose and their vision, and they're using it as a transformational driver um, to grow, to impact culture, to impact, I believe GM has over 173,000 employees. Um, very large a company, $147 billion as of 2018. They were founded over 100 years ago in 1908, uh, General Motors is the largest U.S. auto maker, and um, last year they produced over 8 million vehicles with the uh, nameplates Buick, Cadillac, Chevrolet, and GMC. And Tony, I'd like to let you know that I had a Chevrolet uh, dually um, to pull my horse trailer, and um, it served me incredibly well until I got out of the horse showing business. So, And I also love the Chevy Cruze. It's just one of my faves. Um, actually, I think it's... Um, I think it beats BMW, but uh, don't tell the guys at BMW. <laughs> so, so we're thrilled to be here. So let's just start with, um, tell us about your background, because not only have you been at GMs uh, since 2014, but you've been at many other storied corporations. Yeah, so this is actually my second full-time and third stint at uh, General Motors, and, and I can fill in the full-time versus part-time piece. Um, but um, I spent 10 years here between 09 and, um, or 99 and 09. And um, prior to that, I had spent 15 years at Chrysler, which then merged into Daimler Chrysler. So all in the communications fields. Um, I, I left uh, General Motors in 09 prior to bankruptcy and went to United Airlines for a couple of years and, and worked on the merger with Continental. Uh, then I left that and um, worked for Volkswagen Group in North America as the EVP of communications for Volkswagen, its corporate entity, uh, which is the group, and then Volkswagen brands, uh, Audi, Bentley, Porsche, uh, Bugatti, Lamborghini. And then in 2014, um, as Mary became CEO and um, and got embroiled in a crisis almost immediately. Um, she and I had known each other very well over the course of my 10 years here previous. And, and we had a conversation and, uh, and she kind of asked me to come back and I came back. And you, you're on an amazing trajectory. Um, and I'm just curious, what's your favorite vehicle to drive? I'm currently driving a Corvette Grand Sport convertible. Ooh, what color? Black. With a black Ooh. roof and black interior, and uh, and I'm buying it after I drive it. So we do a, we can do a drive and buy. So that's uh, it's an exciting thing, and I love driving it. It's a seven speed manual transmission and ungodly horsepower. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Okay, so get getting back to the two the, the more serious things. Um, 
I'm just curious about, you've been at so many large organizations and you've dealt with so many auto manufacturers. And in our very transparent world today, what role does purpose play in the automotive industry? I think purpose is, uh, it's an interesting concept because I think oftentimes you hear people talk about vision and you certainly hear the the companies talk about branding and and purpose is an entity that kind of brings or it, it brings it all together at least for me and how i think about it and carol we've known each other a long time seen each other present i and i look at trying to simplify things very much every step of the way so mm-hmm. when i when i worked for the europeans um and and daimler chrysler and then volkswagen i used to and i lived in europe uh, for with gm for a period of four years and we had the opal brand at that time and I used to joke that the that the brand gods flew over Europe because they were very structured on what the brand meant to the consumer, and and it was very clearly defined all the way you know through the CI and where you could use it and what it meant and what you were going to promise to the consumer. Um, but it it didn't lend itself to the same vision for companies, and then they would develop these visions that were in my mind, too often abstract, and they they weren't generated from purpose. And I think the single biggest difference I see right now, at least in what we're trying to do here at General Motors, is is the purpose was within the construct of what was the General Motors brand going to mean. And with that branding, what then, how, how could you articulate the purpose and then eventually a vision that people could rally around. So I think it's extraordinarily important to to define. Um, but if you just leave it to purpose or just leave it to vision or just leave it to brand, I think you're, you're sub-optimizing the whole system. I, I think that's really smart. And I love your purpose. And I talk about it whenever I'm giving a speech because it's to move humanity forward. Um, it, it's not about just driving from X to Y. So can you can you give a little bit of dimensionality to what does to move humanity forward mean for General Motors and then for you as an employee at General Motors? Sure. So um, as we were developing the work on the on the GM brand, see, first of all, just a little bit of context. So we sell, as you pointed out, in the United States, Chevy, Buick, GMC, and Cadillac, and multiple brands outside of the United States. And those those consumer-facing brands have a definitive consumer promise that uh, that we go to market with. But oftentimes, very often, the General Motors brand as a holding company of all of those brands is, is not really well understood by consumers and sometimes and oftentimes not even connected to the brands that we sell. So people believe that they're buying from a Chevy or buying from a Cadillac. I think GMC is a little bit of an IQ test personally, but, uh, <laughs> um, but you know, but in, in reality, they still are buying from that entity. When, we, when it comes to the brand of the company, though, there are specific audiences that we wanted to define what, what were the greatest ROI and really put the discipline that we were putting forth on the consumer-facing brands into the GM brand. And that led us to a discussion as to what would a purpose be, what is the brand essence, who are we targeting it to, and then and then in the, in the end, how are you going to go about doing that? And the purpose was developed with moving, moving humanity forward was we know we, we wanted something that was going to be more broad-based that people could aspire to and that it could inspire us internally. But it was never going to be a tagline. It was never going to be something that we rolled out because what it really led to was the discussion of what is the brand essence for General Motors? And that was to become a transformative company. And as a transformative company, what was it that we were going to influence and how did we want to articulate that? Which led to a discussion within the senior leadership team led by Mary that got us to our vision of zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion, which was something that we could authentically influence on a go-forward basis. And the authenticity of what your company can influence is critical to it being a believable vision and then one that people could rally behind and aspire to. So then as we did that work, then we defined which audiences were going to provide the the greatest ROI for the GM brand. And those were really employees and future employees, investors and policymakers. And so we weren't going to try and tie it to the consumer brands, um, mostly because we've tried that for decades. um, And I've been around for several kicks at that can. And, and it just, it, it, it hasn't, 
it hasn't resonated. Even though all the research says I want to buy from a company that I trust, I want to buy from a company that has these kind of aspirations. The fact of the matter is people think they're buying from a company called Chevrolet or a company called Cadillac. And and they are large concerns that do have consumer-facing promises. So rather than fight that, we took a step back and said, what can we realistically influence? And what can what can the societal benefit be? And that this rallying cry is much more than a rallying cry. And frankly, it's bigger than General Motors. Yeah, I, I think that's really great. And I think that uh, in particular, the, the way you are having the, the brand identity of the of the sub brands of the own brands, the the car lines, different from the the brand identity and purpose of General Motors makes a ton of sense. Uh, and and it also I think the moving forward vibe is really important. Uh, but I also think just from you know reading what I've read about uh Marion and about GM, uh you, you do a great job at GM of both honoring and recognizing um your past. Uh you know, good things, bad things, everything. In, in in figuring out what that path forward is. Can you talk a little bit about how your past reflects on that future? For sure. I mean, um, one of the seminal moments in all of this development work was um, a meeting we had with Mary where we were talking about what what is it that we're going to answer for? What is it that we've developed, uh, you know, maybe on some cases on purpose, providing freedom for people, providing uh, a way to get from A to B or expanding city centers into rural areas, et cetera. But then what were the unintended consequences? And when we thought about that and, and discussed that, Mary was the first leader that I've ever worked for in the auto industry that said, you know what, I can own the fact that people still crash too often, that too many people still die that there are unintended consequences of emissions, whether we're 99% emission free today or not, is not the most relevant term, that there are unintended consequences. And that we're and that there's a frustration if you're stuck in traffic or you can't your vehicle can't be part of your overall internet of things, if you will, while you're going forward. And so so how do we how do we answer to some of those unintended consequences? And that really led to this aspiration of of zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. Um, so we can honor the past of what we've done, but we can also be honest about 90 million vehicles being sold a year with internal combustion engines are not going to be are not going to have no effect. Yes, we could argue for decades that that the fastest way to improve emissions in the in the world would be to get everyone out of their old cars and into new cars. That's true. But that's also not good enough, and it's certainly not what's going to be aspirational for our workforce if we're going to ask them to be transformative in personal mobility going forward. And I'd love to talk some more about your focus on your workforce and the critical need that Mary has stated, you know, very publicly, that your culture had to change. And can you talk about that, Tony, how the culture has changed? You talked about characteristics in the culture um, at a recent conference that are very different for GM, and you were very candid about them. Yeah. So when we worked through uh, what was known as the ignition switch crisis, um, one of the byproducts of the, the reason that happened was just too little accountability through the company in terms of people feeling that it was always somebody else's job to either raise the flag or or question what the results were. Or frankly, once the results were starting to come in, whether it was their responsibility or not. And so what Mary said when we went through that and, and kind of found out what happened, and we, we did an independent deep dive to figure out what exactly happened, because it had happened 10 years prior to um, to Mary becoming the CEO at least 10 years prior, maybe 11. And um, and what we discovered was that fundamentally, we it's not acceptable to have a culture that doesn't accept the accountability personally on, a, on every person. And it was very clear, too, that while Mary was getting a lot of credit for handling the crisis, ultimately, she was charged with changing the fundamental culture of the company. And so... Mary was very adamant about this fact that you don't change cultures in general because that's a big black box that nobody can seem to understand. So how did we dive in 
and understand what was it that we were going to drive change. And that came down to what behaviors were needed within the company. And uh-huh. those behaviors emanated from the brand work that we did and aligning this and the purpose work that we did and the vision that we did and define specific brands that we were going to have to, or sp- specific behaviors that we were going to have to um, adhere to and hold each other accountable. You very publicly stated about some traits that Mary has infused into the culture. You say you can't, but I think she's tried. And I think zero, zero, zero has had the clarity um, in the that call, that mantra. And, and actually, um, you have a very succinct employee video. And, and I was just struck by one of your senior executives, unnamed in it, but he said that zero, zero, zero brought clarity that I have never seen in my career at GM. And this was an individual that you knew had been a GM for 15, 20, 25 years. And so how was the, he was 35 years? Oh, okay. I was trying to be kind. <laughs> okay. So um, the culture, the traits, talk a little bit about them because they're not the warrior beat on everybody and win at all costs. No, they're not. I, the the elements of what zero 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 provides is a filter by which we can make decisions on a long term basis. And it, let, let's say you're working on a uh, a pickup truck, which most people look at and say, you know, how does that align with a zero emission future? So they work on a pickup truck and they look at it and they say, how do I take weight out of a truck and how do I make it more aerodynamic? And then and then what kind of engine do I put in it now? And how does that lean toward a more emission-free future and a lean toward this? Because this, this vision is not something that is going to be a light switch that people are going to flip on and we're going to wake up in two years and that's how it, it's going to work. It, that's not how the auto industry works. It's never worked that way. And I think oversimplifying it is is disingenuous. So allowing people to look at what they do and say, as I strive for my everyday job to make things lighter, to make things more efficient, to make things better, that that aligns and it's and it has a level of integrity with it. But then we had to go beyond that to say, okay, this is the aspiration. And Mary very much, I mean, Mary's an engineer, and so she's she gets into the detail. And you know, you can get lost in the detail, which she never does somehow. Um, or you can really use detail to drive. And we got into specific behaviors that we needed to define for people, whether that was think customer with every decision that you make. So you ask a customer whether they want to drive an environmentally better, uh, more efficient vehicle. Everyone says yes. You ask them to pay for it. Everyone says no. So we've done this for decades. And then we throw up our hands and say they don't know what they want. Well, that's not that's not the right way to ask the questions. You want a more environmentally friendly vehicle? Yes. Okay. What can I do to help you get there? No matter what it is that you need to choose as a customer. So you can make vehicles lighter. We've taken 500 pounds out of every passenger car that we've introduced over the last four years. Every vehicle come, you know, day in, day out and doing that. And that's huge to make vehicles more efficient. We ask people to innovate now. We ask them, okay, don't see the world as it is. See the world as it could be. And you, and yeah, you actually great. put yeah. that right in front of somebody and say, don't, we don't want you just to check it off the box and go home. We want you to innovate. We want you to look around corners. It's a look ahead. We need one team because we need an enterprise approach to the business as, as businesses need to be more agile. So as we go through, and I can go through every one of the behaviors, there's only seven of them, but we can, we can go through and, and really define exactly what we expect of every employee. And it's it's not something that's intimidating. It's something that's free. And and that's a very different culture for a big old company that's been around for 100 plus years. Tony, I would love you to talk about a few of those other behaviors um, for our listeners. So I, I talk about think customer, innovate now, look ahead, one team. Um, another one is be bold. And and that's an interesting one because what we want people to do is have the courage of their convictions to find ways to be influential of the, the purpose of their their conviction. So it's very different than just telling somebody, speak up in a meeting and be obnoxious because you have a point of view that hasn't been well thought through, but you have the courage to speak up. That's, that's not actually being bold. That's actually being reckless. Being bold, though, is articulating your point of view 
and then engaging in a discussion to explain it so that you can say, if somebody says, I don't understand why you're making that point, you can then have a discussion to get to the root of what it is that you're trying to do. That's a very beneficial discussion for senior management to have with employees, but for employees to have within the fabric of the organization. So to say, something doesn't look right and I need to ask questions about that. That's great. If we'd have had that back with Ignition Switch, you know, 10 years prior to uh, to 14, so 15 years prior to now, um, you know, we would, have, we would have been in a completely different place. And that leads to another one, which is win with integrity, which is, you know, we, we absolutely need to do the right thing even when it's hard. And that's the proof of, of a power of purpose, when it's hard. It, when it's hard, it's easy to do the right thing when everything's going swimmingly. But it, when it's hard, it's really when you have to define that you're going to be committed to that. And that's absolutely, we are doing the right thing, even when it's hard. And that includes making some very difficult decisions, whether it's part of the business or making very difficult decisions with, with respect to raising your hand. We have a, a, a way that it manifests itself. We have a, a, a website that, and a way to speak up for safety, which is anonymous. All right. So you can, yeah, you can be bold and do it, but you can do it anonymously too. If you think, wow, this is just too big to keep quiet and you got to do it with integrity. And the last behavior that we're, that we're absolutely driving is the accountability behavior with it's on me. Everyone needs to understand that they have a role to play and don't just punt it off to somebody else. And how often, yeah, I'm curious, how many um, times has that anonymous website been activated? Tens of thousands, if not more, right? Last I mean, a couple of years ago, it was in the 25, 30,000 uh, range of people raising. And, and we absolutely follow up on every single request. And a lot of them have already been, to be candid, a lot of them have already been actuated on prior to somebody asking the question. And and we follow up with every single one. So if it doesn't get acted on, here's why it didn't get acted on, because it either had started or we had already worked through the process and it had been changed, or the the, the element was not as if somebody, it wasn't the same as if somebody saw it being so but we follow up so that everyone knows that their voice has been heard well that that's very very impressive um i know that um mary was highlighted in risk takers uh, which was a cnn business report in march 2019 and i love what i think jeffrey sonnenfeld from the yale school of management said about her he said she has buckets of persuasion understanding and vision which I think says a lot to just her character. Well, I, I want to talk about uh, actually straight from where you, we're talking about employees and encouraging kind of innovation and action taking. I wanted I wanted to dive into some of the technology innovation that's come out of your purpose, and and have you talk a little bit about Cruise and about the pilot you guys are doing in San Francisco. Sure, I, and it fits into a broader. Uh, uh, strategy that we laid out in the fall of 2015. So after we began, got through, so 2014 really was ignition switch and we worked through that. And then we started our work on the branding and how, what was the purpose going to be and what was the vision of the company. And, and then as we defined where we wanted to go, we knew we needed to drive decision-making that answered okay. this, this vision. And so one of the ways that we did that was we were going to commit to electrification and we did, and we brought out the first vehicle in the Bolt EV that, that took away the range anxiety and was affordable for, for people, um, and got over, you know, 200 and at the time 60 miles, uh, range, but it gets better than that on closer to 300. And, um, and that, that answered a lot of questions as to our capability and, and drove our innovation in electrification and continues to drive innovation in electrification. Another area that we looked at, though, was autonomous vehicles. And in, in the old General Motors, and I'm not talking about the old General Motors five years ago, I'm talking about the old General Motors, you know, a decade plus, two decades ago, we would have said, well, we, we need to, we can do that on our own. And so we'll get our own employees to start studying this thing. And, and what we realized was there was a company out in San Francisco called Cruise Automation that was run by a guy named Kyle Vogt and, and a couple of other people. But Kyle was the certainly the technical uh, brainchild of the, of the business. And, and they shared 
a lot of the same vision as we did in terms of autonomous vehicles helping drive safety, driving convenience. And they also believed fundamentally that building it off an electrical architecture was the was the way to go. What they discovered, and as they were working through their system in the fall of 2015, while we were articulating this vision to our investment community and the media, to our employees, um, they discovered that trying to do it on their own and revamping engine controllers and software to meet the demands of autonomous vehicles every single time an engine computer was updated was a, was kind of a, a fool's uh, a fool's journey. So they and and we got together and decided very quickly by this by the early spring of 2016 that we ought to just we ought to buy the company but then we ought to leave it autonomously running in San Francisco because running in San Francisco is by far the hardest environment to make autonomous vehicles work in it's got if you've been in San Francisco you understand it's got Hills, obviously, that's a, that's a no-brainer for anybody who's watched television. But uh, what you don't understand about San Francisco is how many other things are happening. Bikers, how many of the roads are not square roads that that perfectly square off with each other? Um, how much work is done on a daily basis where you have double parking? So, I mean, the just we know that the iteration in San Francisco is by a factor of fifty greater than iterating on a a square box lightly traveled community plus plus the congestion right i mean it's, it's all the things on on top of each other it's got everything yeah. that you got to deal with autonomous congestion would be actually an easy one and if it was only dealing when you, with your own software development frankly because yeah, that's just stopping and going it's it's moving around it and doing things it's it's just wild when you think about how many things you think about driving a vehicle every day so the development there is um, is important. It iterates faster. We we then combine it with the knowledge that we have of how to make vehicles safe, how to make uh, develop them with integrity, how to build them at scale. And we frankly wouldn't trade our hand with anybody. And so they're developing there. We will launch as soon as we feel that it's safer than a human driver, and we can take the driver out of the vehicle. And we will, which is not a long way away. It's not decades away by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's much, much sooner than that. And we will we will launch it and we will have a kind of a, a shared uh, ride share service um, that will start there. And frankly, if you can get the software working there, the mapping that goes to being able to go to scale in other cities becomes exponentially easier. Huge impact. Yeah, that's, that's pretty exciting. And it shows how you can use innovation and your purpose hand in hand too, to get closer to your goals. You absolutely can. And it, and how it influences decision-making. Yes, yes, certainly. I, he- I heard on another interview that um, someone said that um, modern social impact, you can tell it's happening when it impacts product development. And it's certainly impacting your product development. Yeah. Fundamentally, if, if you, are going to influence societal change, then you've got to have a vision or a purpose or the combination of a vision and purpose and, and brand essence that is that is something you can influence. And one of the one of the issues that I've always had, whether it's in our philanthropic activities or or in in company visions, is when they when they try to solve huge issues that they don't have alignment on what they do day in and day out. So how do you get people to rally behind things that are that are critical problems for the world? Yes, I absolutely get it. Critical problems for the world. But how am I going to influence it? And can I drive social change? And, and when you look at it that way, you can get pretty specific, yet aspirational at the same time and have the authenticity that you need for it to be part of the fabric of a company and something that can withstand the test of time. So let's let's take that point just a little bit further since you're you're talking about social change and making that fabric and and actually you've opened the door to philanthropic as well. Let's let's switch cities for a minute. Uh leave leave San Francisco where it is and talk a little bit about Detroit and kind of the home of your CSR efforts there and how you're you know helping locally and and what you're looking to do to expand those efforts. We we obviously we align our our 
promise, if you will, to um, our, our vision, to all of our work. But specifically in Detroit, we go, it's our headquarters city, and we have some fundamental issues here that need to be resolved. We can't align those with our with our vision. Um, but one of the one of the biggest influences that we need to have uh, to improve Detroit is going to be in education. And so we have we have really worked very hard to establish um, a presence in an organization that's called the Detroit Children's Fund, which brings together entities to improve education in Detroit. And we we focus on our philanthropic activities between STEM education, um, advancing safety, and then what we call economic sustainability, and, and a broad sense across all of our philanthropic act- activities. And what, but you can't get to STEM education if you don't have the the basis of education to start with. And one of the things Detroit has always needed is is the ability to um, to answer that bell. And it's been something that's that's been worked on and continually for decades, uh, probably the better part of two or three decades. And for the first time, we're starting to see some of the work of what this group is doing, combining with the Detroit Public Schools so that we have measurements that are in place so that we can really enhance the education at a base level for the children of Detroit. And we believe it's fundamental to the economic um, viability of the city overall in the long term. Um, we. We know that we need to uh, to improve the working conditions in Detroit as well. We we have the we have learn, work, um, and thrive as the three main mantras in Detroit. And um, and to to work, we need to the learn piece I just talked about. To work, we know that there are technical um, um, jobs that are available that we could provide training for. That are that are more trade oriented sometimes than uh, than just um, than than in higher education and those those jobs there's a shortfall of those as well a lot of them in frankly in in automotive dealerships and and repair and that kind of uh, trade training but but much more broadly than that and then in the thrive aspect of it we know that the, the community is rich in its history with Motown it's rich in its history of arts and um, and making sure that these entities don't go away because of the economic struggles that the uh, the city has had. So we 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 burrow down in our headquarters city, and then we we then blow it up and expand when we go beyond the headquarters into into STEM education, safety, and economic sustainability. Um, on the issue of STEM education, it, you know, STEM education has become one of the most uh, focused on areas over the last 10 or 15 years. I know that we had the opportunity to work with Microsoft on that. Um, Tony, how do you find your area that's tight enough that you can have an impact? The big, well, (laughs) the biggest step is when people come to ask for funding, they have to prove that they are going to align with one of the three areas. And then there are specific metrics that they have to submit for ongoing funding. And so they have to put together the plan that says, here's how we're going to do it. And then they actually have to do it. I think for decades, big companies were kind of divided and conquered. Everybody came after a dollar. And if you had a slightly different mission statement, then you were in competition with somebody down the street who had their their own mission statement. And 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 frankly, we sub-optimized the social impact, I think. Companies would take you know, a dollar and divided in half or divided into thirds or divided into tenths. And, um, and just because two, in, you know, two individual organic organizations were more interested in their own mission statement than combining strengths and going and doing it. So we oftentimes spend our time combining organizations to say, how can you both get together to drive an actual social outcome? So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is, is frankly, this measurement. And if you go on our website and, and you start to apply for funds, there are going to be a series of demands, frankly, that we're going to put toward you to say, this is what you've got to do. And if you promise X and you deliver X minus, then we're going to have a conversation as to whether it, it goes forward or not. And that's that's hard when you've been an institution that's been around for 110 years to, yeah. to meet with people and say, we love your mission, but our but our social impact doesn't align right now, and we need to put our funding where we're going to have the biggest impact and where we where we can own the impact. And um, and that was one of the first things we did when we 
brought the philanthropic organization under and it, under me is overstating my significance with it because frankly all I do is ask a lot of questions and I get really smart people to to go after it and but I every organization where I've been part of a foundation or or leading the philanthropic end one of my greatest frustrations was this sub-optimization of like entities arguing over the almighty dollar from a company. And it just, you know, there are things more important than that. And frankly, driving the social changes is, is the most important. I've always argued it's not about getting credit for what you're doing. If you drive the social change, your credit will come. There you go. Well, that, that's great. Um, totally different question, but um, how did being on the cover? Mary was on the cover of Fast Company, and you talked about your targets are future employees, current employees. Um, what kind of uh, impact did that have? That's pretty cool. Yeah. I, well, you know, for decades, communications has argued it's 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 worth right, and we've always had this uh, inferiority complex against uh, marketing for decades. Um, this is one where as we get closer to all of our organizations and can measure direct impact, then then we are aligning kind of resources so that we can have that impact. So when Mary was on the cover, as you said, in, I can't remember what year it was, it was either 16, 15 or 16 in the fall, um, we saw a direct impact on the numbers of technical um, uh, students going to our website to not only look for technical opportunities and jobs, but apply for. And it was, um, in terms of searches, it was some astronomical. I want to say it was up, it was up like five to 10 X in terms of the searches immediately. And then the quality of the, uh, of the student that was coming into it was, uh, was direct as well. I've seen a similar impact in the last year. We did a, um, Mary did a, a, kind of fireside chat with Axios and did it in Boston, did it, you know, right with the, the MITs of the world and, and all of the technical institutions that are right there in Boston and invited a, a bunch of students to come show up live 400, 450, but then Axios carried it. And, and it was, you know, the surprise factor of, you know, big old automotive company been around for 110 years with a female CEO sitting there saying, yeah, we believe in a world that has zero crashes, zero emissions and zero congestion. We had a we had a huge aha factor there. And then the engagement of what was essentially a one company uh, employment fair was uh, was pretty astronomical. <laughs> and so better to actually just understand when somebody comes to you with an opportunity that says, really, we really think this aligns with what you're trying to get done. Um, and they were right. It did. It's interesting just listening to you, how your, your brand strategy and your identity, but also your business strategy and also your recruiting strategy all sort of line up. And, and it seems like the, the new audience of potential workforce that you're appealing to and the, the next audience of potential consumers that you're appealing to are the same audience. And so I wanted to just talk a little bit or have you talked a little bit about how your your millennial outreach is is transfigured by all this other thinking yeah i i think when one of the the real benefits Chris, that we've had is we haven't gotten too caught up in ensuring the short-term alignment of the consumer brands with the the longer-term alignment of the company's vision now that that shouldn't be misconstrued to say that they don't need to be complimentary. And certainly there are times where people want to look at a brand and say, is it living up to that when they make that connection? Um, but we knew full well that if we, if we were to influence future employees and they were to understand the vision of this company and then they were to engage this company, the likelihood would be that they would then understand ultimately which brands belong to this company. Because as I said earlier, it is amazing how many people don't know which brands, and I don't want to give uh, free publicity to our competitors because their brands often come up as brands that General sure. Motors owns. And uh, but as you engage an audience and they get more familiar with you, you are you are connecting those dots on a longer term basis. And then the brands that we have need to then reinforce. And so it's important that Chevrolet came out with the Bolt EV because it was a it was an electric vehicle for everyone at a time when. Tesla was frankly electric vehicles for very rich people. 
And as Tesla's tried to go mainstream, we've seen some of the struggles that they have. We have the capability to do that at the levels that these vehicles start to get accepted. But then we know our role needs to be more broad-based. If we're really going to have credibility with that, then we're going to need to be part of infrastructure. We're going to need to be part of, of making sure that we develop technically a vehicle can, that can be charged in about the same time it takes to fill a gas tank. And if you can do that, then the economics work for the quote-unquote gas station in the future, which is basically a charging station in the future. And then th- those economics start to play out. And then the next stage on that is, okay, how do you generate electricity? Then you need to do it with renewables and do that on a go-forward basis. That's why this is decades away. This isn't something that you're just going to flip a switch. I mean, we we did the 1950s had the, you know, the the infrastructure for the national highway system, and that led to gas stations and everything else being proliferating themselves. And you have the same kind of rollout here. It's just going to be transforming to the twenty for mid twenty first century um, eco structure. So, so how much have you shared zero 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 with the financial community? A lot. I mean, the, the ESG is a big deal, as you guys know, and financial community. You know, for us. It's, it's imperative to do this because if, if we only speak about um, the, the, the traditional business, then we are going to be largely invested in by value investors who look at us as a stock that provides a great dividend with a very, very attractive return um, from an earnings perspective. And, and that is a value long-term kind of investor. If we're if we're really going to get to the growth investors, and those are the investors who are willing to kind of look out in the future and then and then grow our market cap in a in a way that is that is relevant and in a way that is really appropriate when you have companies like Cruise, when you're leading in electrification, when you're going to have an infrastructure for electrification, uh, when you have data management that we have in terms of what's what's involved in cars, you can. You can provide the privacy that people want, but then aggregate data. Um, those are all growth industries. And so going to them and having the, the vision of where we believe that this mobility is moving toward is critical. In fact, the first articulation of this vision prior to buying Cruise, prior to rolling out the Bolt EV, prior to having an investment in Lyft, was to the investment community and the media on the same day. But how do you balance the short term versus the long term? You. You need to do both. That's the trick. I mean, that, that's the that's the brilliance of Mary is is her ability to understand where the core business needs to perform, not only so that it can fund the long term, but so that it can it can lay the groundwork for the long term business decisions that we're making. So, you know, we we've had a history, hundred plus year history, of needing to manage a company for for the core business, but then needing to invest in breakthrough technologies. Um, there arguably we had a period there that, that didn't go so well when, when lots of forces lined up against General Motors and, and ended up in a, in a bankruptcy filing. But those days are no, I mean, we go into it every day saying we're never going back there. So we're going to make the decisions we need to make today that both provide for the core business and provide for the ability to invest in the long term. And frankly, thinking when you're a $150 billion business, you can be a pretty, You'd be a pretty big venture capitalist. <laughs> and scale, you know, you'd think that uh, the bravado of some others not to be named, they're saying, oh, they'll never get their act together. They'll never get their culture aligned. They'll never innovate. And to hear Mary talk about AVs and EVs and car sharing and, and also the hard thing decisions that were made in terms of, you know, downsizing. But, you know, but she talks very openly. We downsized during a positive economic cycle. So we could help our employees find other positions and so versus, you know, waiting for the moment when everything goes bad. Right. Which has been the history of this industry is waiting until everything kind of collapses and then you're able to say, well, everybody's doing it. So we, you know, that's, that's the do it even when it's hard kind of decision. And anybody who thinks that we take any of those decisions lightly because we're only looking at the economics is, is just crazy. They don't know Mary. And they certainly don't know the management team that exists today. And frankly, you know, we did we did the restructuring in November because the economy was so strong. Unemployment was practically non-existent if you take away cyclical unemployment. And um, and we were able to offer a job for for everybody who was impacted. 
we have a job for everybody. Now, it doesn't mean it's in the same community. And right. frankly, if it's in the same community, we work really hard to find a viable alternative for the community that uh, that was impacted and, and believe that there is such an opportunity kind of go forward basis. Yeah, very much a multi-stakeholder based approach. So I hate to say that we're near the bottom of our wonderful interview, but we are. So I, you have given us so many insights. So to ask you for three or five insights for um, your peers or others who are contemplating you know, significant transformation, culture change, you know, that they need to bring to focus on their purpose and then bring it to life with a mantra. What, Tony, do you think are the most important things for your for your colleagues or others in the purpose world to consider? So let me preface it by saying far be it for me to to think that I understand all of the challenges that my peers have. Um, I think one of the things I've learned over the years is that until you're walking uh, in their in their shoes, you probably don't understand the significance. So take all of this with a grain of salt. The, the first is is fairly universal, though, and that's that it your purpose needs to be authentic. It needs to be something that you can own and you can influence. Um, too often we've got vision statements or purposes that could be anybody's. And while we fulfill our mission of doing our homework assignment when we do that, that's truly not very effective. Um, the second one for me personally is, is just get started and quit getting hung up on all of the, the nuance of the verbiage or um, whether or not marketing's in control or communications is in, is in control, just just start going and then figure out who it is you're trying to influence on a highest return on investment basis. And so that means that you get to limit your audience reach first to uh-huh. test it out so that you get a higher rate of return and you Great. get some wins, which then uh-huh. gets some wind at your back and you can move forward. And so I think too often, at least historically and in, in my view, the complexity of the everyday for us gets in the way of creating a simple uh, direction. And we pride ourselves on the ability to manage complexity. I think sometimes it's to our own, um, it undermines what we're trying to get to. So try and be very simple and go after um, who it is you're trying to get done, get who you're trying to influence, and then what is it you're trying to get done. Um, for me, what worked very well was partnering with, with marketing minds that had the discipline already in place of brand development because it forced us to ask questions. And the benefit that we brought was an engagement level that wasn't, we get to tell people what we're going to be, but it's much more about, we have to engage audiences so that we understand what their predisposition is and then how do we bridge to what it is we want to become and that added a lot of fidelity to the work that we were doing. Um, those would be the things I would give people to think about, at least as they as they go forward and, and start this this uh, journey. The last piece is that exactly that it's a journey, and defining when you won before you started is is a very difficult task if you truly are reaching into the future. And as I've been pretty vocal about um, our vision is not one that is going to be two to five years and we're going to look at it and say we've done it. This is something that the C-suite is going to own at this company probably for you know a decade or two as they're going through it and maybe longer it, to get to the full you know congestion, full emissions free, full accident free, um, you know zero crashes type vision but um, but it makes it it doesn't make it any less valuable today to start that journey. Who should be the ultimate integrator of the journey? Because I'm seeing that you've got the CCO who wants to be. Um, you've got the CMO who wants to do those amazing ads. You've got the head of strategy. Some of the, I've seen presidents of foundations with MBAs who want to do this. Who do you think should be the integrator of this in companies today? I think it's the whole C-suite, frankly. Um, if you don't have buy-in 
um, across the entire C-suite enterprise, then you're probably going to sub-optimize its effectiveness. Too often, over the course of 35 years of doing this, communications had to go do communications, marketing had to do marketing, right. HR had to do HR, legal had to do legal, the, the actual functional areas had to do what they did well. But but to be truly successful in agile companies today and the level of transparency that's required today, um, it, it needs everybody that's just going to kind of lock arms and say, we own this together. And, and frankly, um, it's been an inspiration to me to work for someone who, who embraces that idea and encourages it across the entire enterprise and, and says, we are enterprise leaders. Your number one team is around this table. Then you go manage your organization. And, uh, right. and Mary has done that and it, she's, she's doing it effectively. She's, you know, we never underestimate how much more work we have to do, uh-huh. but we never lose sight of the fact that we need to work well together. Oh, yes. Yes. When Mary was asked, I think about CNBC, you know, it's your fifth year anniversary. How are you doing? And they kept trying to ask her to give herself a grade on a report card. And she said, I'm never satisfied with my performance. She's so never satisfied I'm, I'm, with any of our performance. <laughs> uh, Tony, I, I think this has been a tremendous conversation. Tony Zervone from General Motors, Senior Vice President of Global Communications. Um, you know, I think that the culture that is evolving very much courses through your blood as well as your brain. So, so fabulous conversation. Um, I just like to close to say that, you know, General Motors vision, you know, zero, zero, zero. It's a simple mantra, but it's so profound. Um, as one of your colleagues said, it's a message that it's greater than General Motors. It's greater than our industry per se. It's about the future of our planet and the future of humankind. It's a compelling North Star for us. It's giving people a different view of General Motors. So today, thank you for sharing with us such great insights about your purpose journey. And I just like to end for our listeners with the question, what is your purpose? 